0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Fuji Love Podcast. This is the show brought to you by Fujilove Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series or GFX, head on over to Fujilove.com. My guest for this week is David Anthony Williams. He's an amazing portrait photographer in Canada. He is uh, an official Fuji X-Photographer. I had a lot of fun talking to him. It was, it was very cool talking about just... Uh, the past, the the beginnings of digital photography, his time at Kodak. Uh, he has a lot of stories. Uh, we've only scratched the surface. This, this is one of the amazing guests that we've had that I would love to bring back on just to talk, uh, talk stories. But uh, one little thing that I do want to mention is that I did cut off a little bit of the beginning, uh, mostly pleasantries and stuff, but I noticed that we talked a little bit more than usual about COVID and everything that's been happening, and I know that's how I start a lot of podcasts, it seems, and so this time I cut it out. Yes, COVID is a thing. I just don't want to keep dwelling on it at the beginning of each podcast. It is kind of the elephant in the room for everybody who lives in different parts of the world, but... I think we could skip that part and just go right into the photography. So with that, let's jump right into the interview. So without further ado, I want to bring on David Anthony Williams to the show. David, how's it going?
1: It's great, mate. I'm trying to keep cheerful at this particular time, and it's uh, it's uh, the best way to be, I reckon.
0: Let's talk photography. Sure. Um, love your work, and I want everybody to be able to see your work uh, in Uh, in addition to hearing this podcast. So where can people find some of your photography that they could follow along with?
1: I think probably the easiest way to to look at what I'm doing is to go to my website, which is davidanthonywilliams.com and um that's my my general sort of purpose website and so forth i've got two facebook posts or oh, sorry um areas uh one of them is my general rat baggery that i go on with and the other one is just based around art inspiration and it's just things that i find it's not necessarily my work it's more about things that i find thoroughly interesting in the world of art so look up either of those and um join up right Follow on
0: all. and for, those of, for the audience that doesn't know, you are an official ex-photographer uh, photographer for Canada.
1: That's right. I mean, I have a great history with Fuji in the sense that um, if we go back to um, my days in Australia, um, around about 1993 um, – from then is when I really, really started full-time in photography. I'd been a professional laboratory slave for many years, probably about 18 years before that. And if I go back even further than that, I started work at Kodak when I was about 15 or 16. My dad was a Kodak executive um, that worked in the um, uh, professional markets division. Oh, wow. And and, uh, before that, he was a photographer in the – early days in Queensland and started off with flash powder and, and glass plates. So it's quite a long and involved history within the family. But, but basically, coming back to the experience in photography, um, I'd done a number of jobs with um, working with the company that imported Hasselblad in Australia. And I got on board with Fuji. And it, it was interesting how it came about. So in answer to your question, I started off in full-time photography in about 1993. And I previous to that, uh, I'd worked for a professional photo finishing laboratory. And before that I'd worked for Kodak and my dad was a, a Kodak executive. And before that he was a photographer in Queensland and worked with glass plates and flash powder. Um, my connection with, with companies like Fuji and so forth w- were an interesting story in the sense that in about 1998, I was taken on by Kodak to do the promotional photography for the Portra series of films in Australia. Nice. Now, this was like the first time that they'd actually had local content. And I was extremely flattered and honored to, to be doing that. We still used the same framework from Rochester. And the way that all this ties in was that probably about, Two years after I'd done that work for them, um, I won a Fuji uh, S1 in a, an image competition in Australia and started working away with that. And I remember talking to my my dear friends at Kodak uh, not so long afterwards, and um, I'd changed over completely to digital within about, uh, I think, four or five weddings.
0: Oh, wow. And, and when wh- what year is this right now?
1: This was uh, in t- about 2002, I think 2000, 2002. Yep, and um, around that area. And um, what was interesting was that was their reaction, and they they were pretty ashen-faced. And
0: I said, um, "This digital will never take off. I don't know well, why you're doing exactly.
1: this." <laughs> and, I, and I said, "How long did you think it will ta- would take? You know, people." I said, "This is going to go go like a steamroller," and they said, "We thought it would take 25 years."
0: Oh, jeez. Yeah, the, the, the short-sightedness is uh, legendary, and we all know how that story ended. But well, when... it's,
1: It is doubly interesting in the sense that um, probably about three or four years after that, um, when Kodak was still not so bad, um, I had a, a contact from one of the Kodak representatives who said, would I like to attend a meeting from one of the gentlemen from Rochester? And I said, I'd love to, but is it all about how to keep on selling film, paper, and chemistry? And the gentleman who worked for Codex said, "Um, sorry, you can't make the meeting. (laughs) So even then, they were still, you know, trying to move a battleship into reverse in full steam, you know. So anyway, I I started off with Fuji in Australia, uh, working with the Fuji S1 and then the S2 and the S3 and then ultimately the S5. And um, the only one that I wasn't involved with working on as a a promotional exercise was the S2, which was actually my favorite camera of the whole lot.
0: Now, back then, refresh my memory, because uh, those were their version of the DSLR cameras, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. Those were basically um, Nikon cameras uh, that had Fuji guts in them and uh, Fuji badging. And it was all, it always interested me, and it's a, a worthwhile having a little chat about this, which is as you know, people even before social media loved to make stuff up. Yes. And <laughs> like a classic example of that was I remember people used to say, um, when I was with Kodak, they'd say, Oh, Kodak Tri X film is not 400 ISO, it's 200 ISO. Maybe not even that, it's probably 160 ISO. So Kodak's all wrong. And I'd usually say to them, I've got to ask you a question, which is, you've got a, you've got a light meter, right? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I've got some 6. And I say, are you using the dome or the flat disk to meter with? And they'd proudly say, oh, of course, the dome. And I say, that's the dome is for measuring transparency film where you want detail in the highlights. If you use it on color negative film, or sorry, black and white negative film or color negative film, it'll be underexposed by about a stop and a bit, or maybe two stops. You nice. use the flat disk. And so, you know, there's all this sort of misinformation. And people used to say about the Fujis, they'd say, oh, well, they claim that they're a, you know, a six megapixel or a 12 megapixel, but they're really only half that.
0: Yes, I heard this before. This is back when I was using the S7000. That, that was my first digital Fuji camera.
1: Right, and here's the thing: is that you know, no matter no matter how much information I found out about the Fujis and all the rest of it, ultimately I came to the belief that whatever they did, it was some magic fairy dust that they were sprinkling all over it. Because whatever they did was fabulous. But Fuji, at that time, they put their energy into making uh, a computing system on board that basically made superb JPEGs. Yes, like. And no other camera came close to the quality of Fuji's for JPEGs. Like for all the other cameras, like the, the C cameras and the N cameras, it was basically a compromise. In other words, they wanted you to use the raw file and that was it. Whereas with Fuji, they were basically saying, well, what's wrong with the JPEG? And of course, then again, you get the uh, photography Nazis who say, well, it's only a proper photograph if it's done on RAW. Yep. <laughs> and you can imagine that what I'm sitting here now is is with my elbows on the table, holding up my index fingers, you know, in the uh, flying the bird position.
0: I was because one it- of those people back in the day. Um, not when I was using Fuji. Uh, mm. So around this time, uh, now granted my my in in the early aughts that's when my mind gets a little foggy but um but Fuji's S7000 it, that's exactly what I was doing was you I mean it was only a jpeg camera and it was I mean the, the skin tones were just perfect the 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 colors were vibrant and this is back when I was first starting off with uh solid digital photography and I didn't know any better as to how good I had it with that camera, and uh, well, I,
1: I, yeah, I think you got to quantify it also by saying that if you if you imagine that the the um, what would you call it the attitude of the time was and the training was all designed around getting it right in camera. Yes, didn't matter whether it was color negative or what, but but the idea was you got it right in camera, and literally that was how you had to work with the laboratories because there's no way that you could afford to deal with a laboratory and have everything hand printed. You had to be, have it able to go through a machine um, and uh, those exposures had to be pretty damn right. So it was basically not an issue. I remember one guy I worked with who used to be able to get color negative within a third of a stop, regardless of whether it was high key, low key, whatever, on every single frame of film. And nowadays, people will say, oh, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. You know, how could you possibly do that? Well, we did. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, this is why I often get dismayed when I look at a lot of the work that's done in black and white nowadays. And photographers, uh, uh, sorry, I'll quantify that again, doing black and white work digitally and claiming that they like the filmic look about it. And I'm, again, doing little, you know, fingers in the air for quotes. Filmic look and i'm looking at the filmic look that they're quoting and i'm thinking film never looked like that that's what we used to call an underexposed image that we used to chuck out or throw in the bin that's not what film looked like
0: <laughs> i didn't know that
1: and you know you get back to you get back to uh, this principle i me- 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 mentioned before about how people use light meters and i realized that a lot of people are using the light meters in their camera and they're exposing in a lot of cases, black and white film, to uh, to uh, the same standards they would expose a expose transparency, and they're underexposing it. It looks as flat as caca. And um, they're saying, well, I love the filmic look, and I'm saying that's not what film looked like. Yeah. It's what a mistake looked like. You know, <laughs> okay, if you want to call it art, that's fine, go for it, you know. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be a Philistine but please don't tell me that that's what we used to do because it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I remember those
0: good old days. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a great history. So um let's kind of go back into that where uh your dad basically was in the film industry and so that's how how, how early did you start with photography?
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I was just literally showing a photograph today to a friend of mine, which was photographed on the very first roll of color negative film that that was released into Australia in 1960. And my dad is the pro markets manager. He was responsible for the launch of that. Um, so you could say I'd been around it for a while. And my dad was a funny character in the sense that he was a depression era survivor yeah, and um, grew up, you know, very very sort of careful about what he spent money on and an enormous amount of his photography was done on whatever cameras he could borrow i mean i don't actually remember him owning a camera until he was retired but he would borrow cameras from work and so a whole lot of stuff was shot of me and my sister and the family on a, a real grungy old graphic uh, i think a Graflex camera from about the 1920s and so we had an exposure i suppose no joke intended but an exposure to photography that way and it was interesting that when i started to get interested in photography which was around about 15 or 16 i was originally trained going to train to be a potter
0: Hmm.
1: um i'd won a school award on that and um, thought that that was a potential career thank goodness i didn't follow that um and um anyway um I start, basically was no good at school, so I went out and started to work for a, a uh, camera store and then ultimately at Kodak, and the job that I actually adored more than anything else was information services, and that was a department that Kodak had, mall department, Yeah. which uh, basically you would be thinking on your feet all day, like somebody would ring up and say, hey, I want to uh, process a roll of uh, Panatomic X that I've overexposed in D76, one to one, what time and temperature should I give it? You know, this kind of thing. Oh, right on. It would be something like, uh, you know, I have to photograph um, a building or sorry, a shop window. You know, what's the best way of doing it? That kind of stuff. And you were tech support
0: before there was tech support.
1: Before there was, well, this was tech support in effect. Right, and, um, but, and it was basically based off a number of people uh, who I worked with, one, one of whom was my dad, uh, who I didn't necessarily have a- access to during the day, but a couple of venerable old characters who used to also work in Kodak. And I would find out various things from them. And it might be something as simple as, um, how do you photograph a shop window? Well, photograph it at nighttime, you know, use the camera on bulb, hold a black card in front of the lens uh every time somebody walks past and that way you won't get their reflections in the in the image um or you know um some of the things my dad did were 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 quite fun and quite wonderful like they used to have to photograph truck chassis and they needed them to be uh on a white background and they didn't have a studio that was big enough and the studio that they had was basically set up almost in edwardian style so they weren't going to photograph in there yeah so what they used to do was drive it down to a little bend in the brisbane river where there was a a little corner that was white sand and they drive it onto that
0: oh interesting
1: and then they had dad said it was a series of about five bamboo poles And a series of old bed sheets that looked like they'd come from a collar award. They are all dirty (laughs) and grotty and all sewn together very roughly. Yeah. And they'd make that into a background behind the car. And the the trick was that this bend in the Brisbane River always created its own natural uh, wind tunnel. Just a mild breeze that would go through. And that would flap the uh, sheets in the background. So you just did a time exposure and then everything would become white.
0: That's Brilliant. I love these, like, tricks uh, pe- people manage to to work around. Uh, yeah. That's awesome.
1: So these sort of things made me really, really interested. And one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating in retrospect is that I remember my dad showing me, when I was a somewhat truculent teenager, the um, Richard Avedon photograph of Gene Shrimpton, which was published, I, th- I, th- I want to say, in... Uh, Vogue but I think I'm wrong there maybe Harper's Bazaar and it had Jean Shrimpton with uh, an eye it had like a little um, lenticular piece on it so that as you moved the magazine she would actually wink at you
0: (laughs) that's brilliant
1: it's a very clever piece of work but dad interested me greatly in in Richard Avedon and Irving Penn and it's interesting that when I said to dad well look I really want to get a camera." What would you suggest and he actually set me up with a yashica 124g so a twin lens square camera and to this day i still adore shooting square and a matter of fact my fujis are basically all set up to shoot square nice and um so in reality it started off probably about that time and i think the advantage of working with kodak and i figured it out later on was that i spent my entire pay on keeping a beaten up old car going cigarettes at the time and film and paper. And that was it (laughs) (laughs) absolutely nothing to show after it. And I photographed four or four or five years worth of absolute garbage. You know, I don't think I've got one image from that particular period. And I also had tons of cameras at that time. I had, I was running Fuji six, uh, six sevens at one, sorry, not Fujis, Pentax six sevens at one point. Yeah. um, And so forth. and, I think, at last count, I've had something like 76 cameras in my over my life, and not one of them has made me a better photographer. And the only ones that I feel comfortable you got to keep
0: them, trying. That that just yeah. means you've got to keep trying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love I love the Hasselblads and so forth. Enjoyed using those, and um, but I still love a twin lens Rollerflex. And uh, as I say, when I when I use my Fujis, particularly the Fuji GFX uh 50s i have that set up literally just like a Hasselblad
0: nice that's awesome and so let's touch it back uh during that time where you first made the jump to digital you Mm -hmm. had mentioned that you were uh at that time shooting weddings were you shooting the Mm -hmm. weddings with the the s series cameras
1: Yeah, indeed. And And what was that like
0: with the, uh, sorry to uh, interrupt, Uh, what I wanted to really get was, what was it like shooting weddings at that very early stage of that transition from film to digital? Like, how were your clients approaching this new digital realm and how was it like photographing, like, your standard wedding with the, I guess, from today's point of view, the, the the drawbacks with the limitations in iso and things of that nature
1: yeah interesting you say that I mean um basically uh if you imagine that my kit pre-digital was a Hasselblad which I used and, and always printed from Square uh, I never used it consciously to to crop out 10 by 8s or anything like that I also had a a Canon camera at the time that was set up to shoot square negatives. In other words, I had the 35 millimeter modified so that it just shot square. So I call it a baby square.
0: Nice. I didn't know and, they could do that.
1: Yeah. It was just a simple little, a um, couple of blocks on the back of the camera. And of course I used to get calls from various laboratories at different times saying, Oh, we think you're on the wrong flash sync because you know, half the frame <laughs> is missing. And he, you know, fair enough. But, um, and then I had a, um, a normal color negative 35 millimeter and a black and white 35 millimeter, uh, color negative. And then another 35 millimeter that I used purely with a 50 millimeter lens for detail miniatures. And then I had a, an old Chinese seagull twin lens, which I used only on an angle and only with E6 film that, in it, that I would cross process. So if you imagine there were, what, six cameras there that I literally used to cart around in a shopping trolley, or rather my <laughs> my um, assistant would do so. Right. And so basically what I did was I, when I had the Fuji S1, I took out one part of the operation, which I think was the detail miniatures, and started doing those on digital. And then before long, I was doing the 35mm work on that. So I was still shooting, for example, the... A large format on the hasselblad for the stage pictures, and then I was doing more moments and so forth on the um, on the Fuji or on on one of the other cameras in black and white. Yeah. And then one particular day, I don't know what it was, I'd, I'd had a number of bigger prints done. and I think one of the things you have to to have to look at to put this into perspective is that all photo finishing laboratories at that time, were printing through diffusion systems rather than condenser systems. So your image by nature was not necessarily coming out to be the best representation of what was on the negative. And this you'd often notice if you had, for example, shot something on a Hasselblad and done a color negative shot and then changed the film magazine over for a black and white negative and you processed the black and white, but the color went through the laboratory. And you would literally see a difference between what you printed on your condenser enlarger and, and what was printed through the laboratory through a diffusion system. And basically one of the, the biggest pieces of absolute nonsense, um, and you know that I want to use another word there, but I'll just call it <laughs> absolute nonsense, is the number of people who said who said literally up until a couple of years ago, Oh yeah, but it's still not as good as film. That's- yeah absolute claptrap. I mean, I was getting results that were easily the similar to the to the Hasselblad. And I'm talking about images up to uh, 16 by 16, 20 inches square, um, you know, 20 by 16s, twenty twenty fours. They were perfectly good. And you've got to keep in mind that these were images that were quite often lit with electronic flash on a relatively low ISO. And by that, I mean 200 to 400 ISO. Yep. So, you know, we weren't really pushing it the way that we tend to do nowadays. I mean, I would say that nowadays my slow ISO is 400. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, my slow would have been 160. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly, you know, the only... The only initial thing was walking out with your bum cheeks clenched very, very tight because in the old (laughs) Fujis you only had one card in the camera.
0: Yes, and it was like uh, you were lucky to get to like one gigabyte. I I remember getting my first large density was a two gigabyte, and that that wasn't even on a a, a regular CF card. It was one of those small miniaturized hard drives that – were micro you microdrive yeah. micro yes and, and we were told never use this for weddings movable parts and i was like i'm gonna use it for a wedding
1: <laughs> well yeah i mean and i did i did too until Lerp, the solid state ones came out but yeah the, the thing is of course you know history as they say in my day i remember paying a thousand dollars for a one gigabyte card
0: oh yeah i but i remember the price tags. <laughs>
1: yeah but you know we were shooting um at that time, probably – and I'm talking about a, a standard Aussie wedding here as opposed to a gorgeous, rich Greek or Italian or Jewish wedding where you're there all night. Typically for me, I would leave at the start of the reception because yeah. basically all that Aussies did was got drunk and fell over. So um, there was not a lot to photograph. And um, we'd be aiming to, to probably come out with about 600 pictures, mm-hmm. maybe – you know, before editing kind of thing. So what happened was, and this is something that I don't think we fully give digital enough credit for is that what happened is that, is that digital allowed us to experiment. Yes. You were, because what we were trained to do when we were using the Hasselblad is there would be this conscious thought, you have to get this right because every time you press the button, it's five bucks. Whereas when we started shooting digital, the mentality was, hey, it's not costing me anything. I'm yeah. just going sh- to shoot the SH1T out of this. Yep. And so what it did was it made us experiment a lot more. We pushed boundaries of how we lit things and so forth a lot more. And um, it was very, very freeing. So I think that was probably the most major influence of digital uh, coming in. And you can like- see
0: those results right away.
1: Well, you could. And that again, was another, another great thing. Um, like one of the things that used to happen with Hasselblads and anybody who's listening into the, um, the podcast who is a sort of an older photographer will recognize this is that we used to have these safety routines. And one of the safety routines was let's say you, your bride and groom are about to come down the aisle. One of the very first things you do is, is put the dark slide in, take the back off the camera, and hold it up to the light, look through the back of it, and press the button to make sure that the shutter hadn't collapsed. Because what used to happen with Hasselblad's is the shutter could collapse. It'll just fly into a a series of pieces inside the lens. And because the mirror is still going off, it's still making a whoop kind of sound. But you needed to make sure that that was going, and and the sure rule of that was that your flash was working as well. And so we quickly train ourselves to do that, you know, back on with the back, out with the dark slide, boom, you know, get the shot of the people walking down the aisle. And remarkable how we used to do that before autofocus was invented.
0: I didn't <laughs> know you could
1: do that before autofocus.
0: What a novel concept.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm making a very cynical comment there. But <laughs> it's, it's like nowadays, we say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really disappointed that this camera won't do 98 frames a second.
0: Yeah. <laughs> literally oh, spray please you
1: know, please, not everybody photographs like that no. by the
0: way your shutter sound is now my new ringtone <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you know the the other thing too was that i find it very interesting you know talking to clients and you know particularly when you've you've obviously gone through the day and you've got to know each other really well and they'll tell you little stories afterwards and and i know one photographer in toronto here said to me um you know I just wanted to share a story with you about uh, somebody who did my sister's wedding. And I said, Oh, that's interesting. And they told me the name of the photographer and I I said, Oh, that's great. They're a fabulous photographer. And they say, drove us absolutely mental every (laughs) single time they pressed the button down. I was like, like this. And I thought to myself, how have you got the time to sort that stuff?
0: Like seriously,
1: like, if it, you know, it's like the army, if it moves, saluted. if it doesn't move, paint it. Well, you know, like if it's a stable subject, how many shots do you want? There's a great anecdote, which is actually told by a, um, an Australian press photographer called Bruce Possell, And um, it was about a, another newspaper photographer who was set out in the job and it was old Harry and Harry was a bit of an old curmudgeon. And he was sent out to photograph this group that was a government department of something like about 120 people. And they said, look, Harry, we're trying to wean you off the Graflex. We've done that. We're going to try and wean you off the Rollerflex. And we're going to give you one of these new Nikons. (laughs) So he goes out. And they said, Harry, you can go nuts. You know, like you've got a 36 exposure roll in there. Go mental, you know. So Harry comes back, puts the film down and goes off. And they process the film. There's two shots on the roll of 30s <laughs> And the, the picture editor starts to get really cheesed off. And Harry comes back in. And he says, Harry, why did you only do two shots? And he said, well, he said, on the first one, the fourth guy in on the third row blinked. <laughs> and sure enough, they magnified it. And that's exactly what had happened. And on the second one, everybody was okay. And this is one of the things that I still do to this day, which is when I'm photographing groups, I'm not looking through the camera. And, and it actually comes back to another little scenario, which is I love tripods. I love them. I absolutely have no issue with it whatsoever. I have people that, that say to me things like, oh man, it like cramps my style. You know, it like really, <laughs> it stops me from moving. And I'm thinking, you know, you've got legs, you've got arms, you can move, you can pick the thing up and move it. But there are certain circumstances like a group photograph where I want to lock the camera down because if you've got somebody who's dicking around a little bit, you want to be able to swap their head out nice and easily. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that when I'm on the tripod, I don't have to be looking through the camera. I can be looking over the top of the camera. So I'm scanning the eyes. I mean, this is like, you know, photo one hundred and one, but it's lost on a lot of people.
0: You know what? It lost on me too because I would have never even thought of that. Um, that that's exactly what I do at my weddings. I I am. I think part of it is because I'm uh, w- with my own wedding. Uh, mm. I got a little bit burned, and so whenever I do portraiture at uh, like the big group shots, I will do that burst of, like, th- I only do a burst of three. I don't go crazy, mm. but uh, I, I do a burst to avoid the eye blinking. Uh, but right. the beauty about right. Fuji is that it's pretty silent. Nobody knows I'm taking a photo. Well, that's,
1: that, that's true, you know, but it, it brings out additional additional issues, which, again, people don't always consider, which is that when you've got a camera on continuous, simple mechanics are that you press the button down, it starts taking pictures, you lift your finger off, it stops taking pictures. The mechanics of, uh, of your hand are such that if you're in a hurry and if you're stressed, what will happen is that as you lift your finger off, you, the heel of your hand near your, um, near your little pinky finger, the muscles in it push out slightly. Yes. So what can be happening is that you, your last couple of frames are not as sharp as your first couple of frames yep. because you actually hit the camera. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is if you're working with electronic flash, you're going to blow up that flash gun real quick if you're doing a burst. Right. And and the other thing is is that you actually create a feeling of stress in people where they don't need it. So I would rather you know do a couple of shots, Make a couple of adjustments, do a few more, and sure, for a, for a group of say twelve people, I might do eight shots. So the thing is that, uh, yeah, silent is a great solution to that if you're working with existing light. The Fujis are great for that. I absolutely loved it when a certain camera company that shall remain nameless that starts with N uh, came, out <laughs> with a, um, came out with a came out with a mirrorless camera and were proudly saying, you know, oh, you know, you can shoot silently, and I'm going, oh. You mean like Fujis have been able to do for the last two years?
0: And all the other ones too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Anyway, but the, uh, you know,
0: the... Th- Icon. Excuse it's me. A,
1: yeah, it's a very long-winded way of getting back to your original question. I'm sorry about that, which is that how did it change things? So on a typical wedding uh, that I would photograph with uh, uh, my partner, uh, we would probably shoot 4,000, maybe 5,000 shots On a big jewish wedding because we both use the same shooting procedure yep and um and it's interesting that we each play to our own strengths is that uh she will photograph most of the candid work because she's really seriously sh1t good at that
0: Hmm. and
1: i will do more of the the formal arranged kind of stuff the what we call the asked for pictures yes um as opposed to the found pictures and um, (laughs) we're using different kinds of systems and so forth for, for all of that as a matter of fact one of the things I'm dying to do is add on the uh, the uh, new Fuji um, X-T4 yes uh,
0: we'll get I, to that in a minute we'll put a pin in yeah, there yeah
1: yeah but um, but no I just think it's it's marvelous and I hear it sometimes of people shooting like 12,000 shots on a wedding you know and I'm thinking I, I hope you sort of know like when you're firing that off just how irritating that can be if you're working on silent of course it doesn't matter at all
0: yeah but yeah I, I can't imagine like yeah that, that's that's crazy uh, but i must I, admit I heard I, stories yeah i
1: found um i found one one issue though with, with silent shooting which i think is very important for for young players if you're coming up to it which is um obviously during some ceremonies particularly like a Bedeccan for example in a jewish ceremony uh or even if you're under the chuppah or something like that which is that um you don't want to be having that camera going what bang what bang all the time. So obviously working on silent is great. However, when you start working on silent, if you're at a hotel or a venue where they're using particular kinds of light, you can often get banding
0: across yes. your images. That's with the electronic shutter.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that 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 can really screw you up, so you want to be keeping a close watch on that.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And uh, and and so, as your career progressed, uh, you how, did you stay with Fuji or did you go into oh, Canon uh, Nikon?
1: Yeah, sorry, just to, to clarify that. Um, so basically, my work with Fuji was they took me on. This was before the ex photographer program, right? So basically, I was I was hired to basically do promotional work for them. And uh, so I was, was presenting lectures and so on and so forth. And it was around about the same time that I was, like, I'd come into prominence from doing work with Kodak and before that. Um, and uh, basically what happened, was, which was a big game changer for me, was that in about, I, I want to say it was 2000, I had sent an image over to the WPPI Awards of Excellence, and it won the grand award for portraiture and so back in those days that was a a pretty amazing thing and they had lots of wonderful prizes and so on and so forth and so i found myself doing a lot more um lecturing and a lot more teaching uh to photographers and uh both in the united states and canada and england and ireland and um that later on sort of took me to all sorts of wonderful places. When I was working on the job for Kodak, I went all through uh, Asia and so forth. And um, over the intervening years, I've, I've uh, presented in China in Beijing and um, and a few other fun places and Italy and so forth. So, yeah, it's, Amazing. A, it's a, been a great life.
0: Right on. And, yeah. and so... Have you do Do you still do weddings or because when I look at your work, it's mm. mostly headshot portraiture now.
1: Exactly, and I I absolutely adore doing weddings, and and I've got to quantify this by saying that I enjoyed very much doing the weddings that I did in Australia, and they were great people and so forth. But coming over and working with my my uh, pal Story Wilkins here in in Toronto, uh, a lot of her clientele was um, and. I'll say this with the greatest of respect, um, sort of old Canadian money, um, quite often um, there would be a lovely element of of Jewish weddings involved in it. And so I was involved a lot lot longer on the day. I was going right through till stumps, right through till, you know, 12, two in the morning or whatever.
0: Yeah.
1: These people. And I found that it was the most wonderful, wonderful exercises because um, I always, I have this little joke, which is that. The Jewish people invented the hora to show uh, Gentiles how to have fun, <laughs> and um, basically because, as you know, with a Jewish wedding, it just explodes with this wonderful joy and energy, and there's music and dancing and love, and and they want to be with their friends and they want to be with their family, and it's just it's just so fantastic. Whereas, I often used to find back in Australia that it would be, kind of, "Oh, I've got to do some group shots." Oh. Do we have to now whereas (laughs) whereas with the jewish people you know i'll often be you know uh, positioning a booby and a Zadie, for example and i'll just notice out of the corner of my eye that they still have a tattoo yep and and, you know i I remember saying to a lady once you know just some comment in passing and she said i know but look what we made and that that's beautiful yeah but that's that made me realize one thing and i totally want to tell anybody who's listening to this podcast the most important thing that you'll ever hear from me is this the most important wedding photograph is the family group because where did these people come from they've made a new family that's what that's what a wedding is all about the creation of a new family but where did they come from you know, right. you can go out and take a couch into the middle of a wheat field. That's all about you. That's fun photographs for you. That's not photographing their wedding.
0: Right. You're the 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 whole purpose is to bring everybody together, and you you have the entire family past mm. your 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 originators I get that like the the, yeah. the people who made everything happen and celebrating the new life uh, that that everyone gets to
1: that's right and this this is an interesting subject in this in this time you know this aspect of privilege you know is that is that a lot of us in the west think that that this this family aspect is unimportant I remember a huge post on Facebook once which was it basically started off with a photographer saying who else really hates doing the, the family groups and just wants to get onto the real photography? And I looked at some of this person's work and I thought, you've actually photographed a whole series of pictures that are about you for you, not for the couple. Right. You haven't documented the day. And, you know, the thing is that um, what I was getting to, I guess, with this this uh, comment was that um, in this particular day and age we've got to remember what we're actually charged with and that is to photograph and record somebody's wedding you know not to make pictures that are going to impress other photographers if we happen to do that terrific but that's not what what we're there for
0: i like to tell my clients uh i I don't I, i wouldn't exactly consider this like my catchphrase or anything like that but it's kind of my catchphrase. Um, I I tell them, like, like to sum up my entire photography for them, it's 30 years from now, when you look at these photos, if you remember me, I have failed as a photographer because I want you to remember what you were doing, how you were doing it. Like, look at the craziness that we were up to. Look at these family photos. And if you remember me, like, if you remember the photographer 30 years from now, then, boy, did I screw up. Now, yeah. you could remember me five years from now. I could use the referral. But 30? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Mark, it
1: brings up an interesting point, And this is just a little tangent I'll go on that I think is, is very relevant, which is yes. that my, my ex-wife was a photographer in China. And she worked for a department called the Nationality Palace. And this is going back to 80s. Uh, and so forth. And basically what they used to do was they would go around with a video team and stills team and and uh, historians and professors and all that sort of stuff. And they would visit the minority groups in China, and there are about 52 different minorities, and document them and document their music, document their clothing, all that sort of stuff with the idea of preserving their culture. And one of the particular groups, uh, that lives along the, uh, border with Vietnam, uh, are, I, I think I'm right in calling this, they're called the Yi people. And one of the things that they do, which is unusual is they have a, a very feminist society. And it's interesting in the sense that it's not matriarchal, it's feminist in the sense that basically the women make most of the decisions and they can marry as many guys as they want. And, Interestingly enough, their totem, if you like, in each village is a tree which represents the man and a vine growing around it which represents the woman. And I find that alone very, very interesting from a photographic point of view, because when you think about it, who do we have difficulty posing? Usually not the woman. She's quite fluid. It's the guy who's usually as stiff as a post. Yeah. And so that was a, a rather a fitting kind of thing that they have. The other thing was that um, one of the things they do is that they um, they will often use a very, very simplistic kind of illustration, almost like a stick figure kind of illustration, and decorate their clothing and so forth with it. And one of the items that that uh, my ex-wife uh, bought with her team to take back to Beijing was the story of a woman's wedding day in a, we- in a wedding dress. And it literally had all these little stick figures showing how the – couple progressed through the, the town and how all the people were dancing on the side and and so forth uh to the reception you know where everybody gets drunk and falls all over the place mm-hmm. and what was interesting about this was that if you imagine that as i say they have this feminist society and and i have to go back one little step and say that when a girl reaches about 15 or 16 her father builds her a little hut and she can go to the market and she can bring home any boy she likes and basically You know, they can fool around and so forth. And if she likes him, um, they get married. And anyway, so if you imagine that we give a modern day wedding album to this lady, and I'm going to quantify this by going back about 10 or 15 years, because I think we've made enormous leaps and bounds in how we present wedding albums nowadays. Yes. But imagine this lady looking at the Western wedding album, and she would say, ah, It's the festival of the flowers. I can see that there's a ceremony because I recognize the holy man and he's performing a ceremony. And oh, because she's done a good job with the flowers as part of paying homage to them, because it's a very um, shamanistic society. Mm -hmm. uh, As a reward, the girl gets a boy and then there's a party. And why would she say that? It's because so many albums used to start off with photographs of bridesmaids all standing around holding flowers. Yes. Not at any time were we actually showing the ritual that went on in the wedding because we're too close to it. We've forgotten about rituals.
0: In some cases, I think with... uh... Uh, with a lot of the photography like uh, with a lot of the photography that I tend to do, the ritual mm. is usually very quick. I'm more of a but my photography has now kind of centered around rustic photography like, like rustic themed weddings where mm. it, it is yeah. outdoors. it is usually a custom wedding where uh, the bride and groom basically made their own, like their own wedding service their own wedding ceremony so it's very story sharing you know centric so where the 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 You're customs right. are the customs are replaced with uh storytelling
1: You're absolutely right and and yes in that particular circumstance, you would absolutely you would document everything that didn't breathe and everything that does breathe because that's that's the whole ritual that's they're creating a whole scenario and i think generally as photographers we've become enormously better at doing that than what we used to be yeah you know we used to go in with a shot list kind of thing and basically ignore <laughs> ignore all the other <laughs> stuff that was going on you know but anyway um so yeah the times have changed and, I, and they've changed i think for weddings for the better and i put that all down to digital
0: actually yeah
1: um And then, yeah, I'm sorry, again, I went off on that tangent, but coming back to the aspect of of what I'm doing now, I'm basically this year I hit 63 and I've picked up too many heavy cameras on tripods in one hand and too many light stands in another and proceeded to run at full speed into another scenario that's because you so used my, all those
0: tripods during the the yeah. see there it is
1: <laughs> don't use tripods kids <laughs> so look it screwed me up but no <laughs> the, the thing is that um i'm getting a bit too old for it and um and so i i'm i'm happy to be a sort of a second photographer and um the way that we work um is that when one, generally when one person is shooting, the other person is assisting. I see no point in, in always having somebody bashing away from a, a different angle, because yeah. if you've already chosen the right angle, why do you want somebody to duplicate it from the wrong angle? You know? Um, however, when it comes to the reception, yes, we're both shooting then and, you know, at opposite ends of the room and working our way through. Um, so anyway, I've, I've always been attracted to portraiture. Um, business headshots has become a good, a good mainstay for what I've been doing. And then over the top of that, what I have is, is my sort of personal projects where I'll pick a, pick a face that I like, and I'll photograph it the way that I want. And, and that's very, very freeing. Um, one little exercise that I did, which sort of opened my eyes up about this was I went to, um, one of the mystic conferences in uh, Portland in Oregon. Uh, in 2017, I asked Walter Van Dusen, Walter Van Dusen who runs the uh, the Mystic Conference I said, Walter, I've got this idea for a little exercise and it's called the Homeless Gallery and it's not the Homeless Gallery in the sense that it's about photographing homeless people necessarily but it's a concept that came from uh, communist Poland uh, back in the sort of the 70s.
0: That's where my family came 80s. from.
1: Right, right, well Ask, ask the family about this. They may well know about it. And what it was was the, the art movement was basically underground. And so what would happen is that every now and again, the artists and photographers and so forth who were not doing state-approved illustrations or photographs would have been secretly making their artwork and they'd send out their little brothers and sisters on bikes to go out and tell their friends that there was going to be an exhibition and that we'd meet at a certain time of day or night usually at some old disused tractor factory or something like that. Yeah. And they'd put their work up and they'd have a huge party and then they'd take it all down before the, the police got there. And it was an interesting concept. So what I decided to do as a fundraiser was photograph anybody who wanted to be photographed. And it was a basically a head and shoulders kind of scenario. And I would um, make a photograph of them. Uh, it was usually a 10 by 10 inch printed onto a 13 by 19 inch piece of paper. And it would get laid on the floor behind a barrier. And each day I would photograph and print and lay down the images. But every night I'd take them up. So the exhibition disappeared. And then the next morning, because I'd be printing most of the night, the exhibition would have grown and so on and so forth. Until by the end of the conference, we had 120 portraits on the floor. But here was the condition I said, you have to let me photograph you exactly the way that I want. It's my decision as to whether I do one picture or 15 pictures and you'll basically do what I want or I'm not going to photograph you.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's very draconian and, you know, very, uh, very full on. But the point was what I found that was fascinating was that I, I kept on coming out with these ideas of the way that I wanted to photograph people because I wasn't being stymied by somebody else's concept about how they thought they should be photographed or the expectation of a client brief. Yes. And it's something that I would would urge anybody uh, who loves photography and portraiture to, to do every now and again, which is get your gang of friends around and just set something up, you know, feed them full of booze and start taking some photographs. It's amazing what you come up with. And, and this is uh, what
0: is so... This is what really drew me to your work is that Mm. your, your headshots, uh, your portraits are just so full of that, that quirkiness, that, the, the, the little hint of life. They're not just your standard portraits. They're, they're more than that. You, you, you are like, like, uh, it's difficult to put into words, um, because it's it's such a it's something that you're seeing like the glint of light of in, in the the person's eyes, uh, the the that expression of like just that moment of joy or that moment of curiosity. You could read what's happening in, in the photo, and your approach to bringing that out of the person is I mean it's spot on. It it, it is amazing.
1: Thanks. Well, I mean, a lot of it, I think, comes to do with this this aspect of, uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think a lot of it's got to do with coming up with a concept to start with. I mean, I remember a chap saying to me years ago, always have your first three poses in mind. So what I basically try and do is I'll always have a concept for the person. And whether I start with that or whether I finish up with that at the end, um, that's often debatable or changeable yep and but often what i'm doing is i'm working up to that and there's a little thing that i call the half inch factor and what the half inch factor is that little bit of extra that you get out of the person or that little bit of extra that you put in with your energy because i think one of the very interesting things when you read about the difference between irving penn and richard abaddon is that most people will say about Irving Penn was that it was almost monk-like the experience in the sense that he didn't interact a lot with people. He basically sat very, very close to people and was waiting until they reacted. Whereas Richard Abaddon, as you, uh, I'm sure you've seen from some of the pictures of him in midair, literally in mid-flight up in the air, had enormous energy that, that he would bounce off people and they would in turn give him back enormous energy in their pictures and it's basically coaxing out that last half an inch and that half an inch could be the position of somebody's shoulders it could be you know uh, and I'll give you an example it could be um, I did a photograph many years ago of a friend of mine who is a very big big fellow playing a triangle and it was getting his shoulders up enough hunched enough getting his pinky fingers up enough to make the <laughs> whole thing look sort of wonderfully ridiculous enough to make it work yes and likewise what i'm doing um character portraits and i'm just having a look at my own website because I'm <laughs> ages, um which is um to to uh see uh you yeah, know i've modified that um basically what I used to do was a lot of pictures that were in homage to other photographers. And a classic example would be one that I did of um, Don McCullen's picture of the shell shock GI in Vietnam. And I basically took the same photograph, but back to 1916 in, in a French soldier. And so what I did was I basically designed the, the photograph had already been designed structurally by Don McCullen. So I was just changing the costume, the subject, and all the rest of it. But yeah. then I was using a friend of mine who I wanted to use. And so I basically read to him what I'd written out about this character. So in other words, I'd made up the character, wrote, wrote about him. And I think out of the 50 or 60 shots that we took, it was actually the second to last picture where everything came together. Um, and it was, it was the amount of energy that was actually in his eyes and the right amount of it, the right style of energy. It had to be a sort of a crazy energy yeah, and so forth. So, um, and uh, I'm just sorry that I've actually not turned that bit on in my, uh, <laughs> in my gallery. It's all good. Sorry about it's it. all good. Um, but yeah, it's often about that. It's those little quirks in, in bringing those out from people. And so you've got to communicate with people. And I'm often being chided by my partner for working too quickly. Uh, and I think that stems back to, Um, my father who was always saying to me, just don't keep people waiting, you know, get everything set up, you know, um, have everything tested, you know, get in there, you know, get the shot that you want and leave them alone, you know? And so I don't tend to have like long and extensive laborious shoots. It's often a case of basically saying, this is what, what I'd really like to do with you. Um, and. Discuss it with the with the subject, and then I will. We know that we're going for one particular look, and I think that's a lot easier sometimes than trying to do fifteen adequate looks.
0: Yes, and uh, the one thing that I could relate to that is with my own portraiture work for weddings. It is being able to get everything ready. And, and be as efficient as you can so that the quicker you are, the more genuine the expressions tend to last. And Exactly. Uh, it, exactly. With, with my bride and groom, I, I always tell them, like, everything moves faster, everything moves more efficiently, nobody wants to kill me. And, you know, just <laughs> to throw in that little laughter.
1: Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm literally, as we're talking, um, going to uh, open up a picture and send it to you uh, behind the scenes. So I don't know whether you have you seen the the, I've just sent you a photo over (laughs) Roger that. (laughs) Let's fly over to Germany and bomb Jenny, what?
0: It's coming over, over.
1: <laughs> so, oh, here we go. To tell you the story about this image, this is a, fr- a good friend of mine in in Toronto, Siva Haran, who's a very fine photographer in the Indian community. and Siva has a, a very you know wonderful sense of humor and energy about him. And so it was one of those cases of I knew I wanted to photograph him in, in a, a garment as he's wearing. In other words, it had to be a really ornate Indian style wedding outfit. Yes and it was funny because you know we'd spoken about this a week before and in typical photographer style on the day Siva rings me up and says oh I've had I've got a couple of things not quite what you're looking for and I said you go and get that jacket or I'll you know whip your ass kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) so he goes and gets it for me and it's absolutely perfect and so I realized that What I want, and and I went through this with him, I I draped the the scarf, as you can see, across his chest and then over the shoulders. Yeah. And I wanted a certain kind of energy from him. And so I said, I basically went through it and I said, okay, so you're you're in Bollywood. They're making an Indian version of James Bond. So what you've got to do is give me that look, which is like the Indian version of Money penny, take your clothes off and put them next to mine.
0: I see it. I see it in the photo.
1: (laughs) That's the arch in the eyebrow, right? So then I thought, because he's subdued, I love contrasts in things, because his position is sort of relatively straightforward and subdued, I have to put some energy in. So if you imagine that what we did was I got that original image of him, which is photographed on the Fuji X-Pro2, on one of my favorite lenses, which is the 50 millimetre f2. Yep. And photographed square. And then... I moved him out of there and replaced him with a light stand with a polystyrene head on it and then what we did was photographed the scarf we literally threw the scarf up and photographed it so we're using exactly the same lighting pattern and then so that was an extremely simple digital job to to have the the scarves flying out in the background because you're doing it to exactly the same scale under exactly the same lighting so you don't have to do any sort of um, witchcraft in Photoshop. That is and then the, brilliant. Thank you. And then the and then the background is is uh, some sky and clouds that I photographed at another time, and and I um, sort of collect those. And again, just as a as a little point of interest, when you're photographing clouds, perhaps to use in something like this, you actually use them upside down. That way, you get the dark bit at the top. Oh, okay. Because if you have a look at clouds the way that they normally form, it's brighter up above them than it is below them. Yeah. So if you reverse them, then you can, you can get that nice effect. So getting back to your question, you see, that's the whole thing about, I knew that was the look that I wanted, so I discussed it with him. So it was really about getting his eyebrow right.
0: Yes, that that is, that that sells it, that, that that look that he knows something that you don't kind exactly. of exactly, brilliant. And, and so that is like, I mean, that is what it, it just makes your, your, your portraiture stand out so much more above everything else I've seen out there. And uh, I mean, just well done, sir. <laughs> that is, Thank you. Thank um, you. That is amazing. And uh, so I want to, end. we, we, man, I could talk on and on with you. It it is awesome hearing his stories. Uh, Where are you at right now? Like, what is the Fuji gear that you're using uh, currently?
1: Yeah, so basically, I still have my pair of uh, Fuji X-Pro2s. And with those, I have a 35mm F2. Mm -hmm. Um, I have the... Uh, 50 millimeter f/2 and the 56 millimeter 1.2. So why do I have two 50 millimeters? Well, basically the 56 1.2 is what I use for existing light work when I'm looking for an existing light look. Yes. The 50 millimeter f/2 is what I use for studio work with electronic flash. Uh, it's just an exceptional little lens, and um, you know when you're working generally speaking lenses that are around about f2 or even 2.8 and so forth i think tend to be better resolution than some of the big maximum aperture lenses and it's also a little bit faster and it's also nice and compact too
0: yep i'm doing so the I, same thing but with the 35
1: yeah so well the 35 is tiny and i i've had the 35 mil 1.4 but i must admit i had the version that was uh, or i had it um when I had a Fuji X pro one mm-hmm. and I found it just a little bit slow and sort of, you know, yeah. a, a, little, a little bit like a, an old man trying to make love, you know? So, um, <laughs> so anyway, the, the other one was much faster. And so, um, basically I have that. And then I have the GFX 50, uh, S with the 63 millimeter lens. And it's, it's a really funny thing to say. And I thought this is, this is such a dated observation and it's one of those things about photography that when you know it's not going to bother a whole generation of photographers but I'm still searching for something that gives me the same perspective and the same crop as an 80 millimeter lens on a two and a quarter square
0: yeah no I hear you it's
1: different you know it's it's different and will that worry somebody who's never seen that before? Not at all. They're not going to care. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: so, um, um, the other camera I've been playing around with, which I really enjoy is the, um, Fuji, uh, GFX 50R.
0: I got to and play I with really that earlier in the year.
1: That. Oh yeah. That's, that's a real spunky camera. And, um, I really enjoy, uh, using that and I've borrowed a 100 to 200 mil zoom lens and that's been great. I mean, that's that's not a cumbersome lens by any means. It's been a great combination. And the maximum aperture on that is f4. But, you know, we don't do everything at candlelight. So, again, I'm not sort of perturbed. It's just horses for courses, right? Right. So, just sending you through one other image. Um, one of the things that I, I lecture on... Um, and talk about to photographers a lot is is influences, because I think one of the hard things is when you're a photographer, or you want to become a photographer, is that various people will say things to you like, "Oh, you should look at art," and that's all very well, but what art? In other words, what is actually going to have a concrete effect on an image that you produce? And I think one of the things that I, I call it a student attitude, and I call it that because every time I visited a college that teaches photography, I'll encounter the same thing, which is people who are just starting off in photography, bless them. And they're saying things like, oh, well, I'm still trying to develop my own style. (laughs) And and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, your style is gonna come from the input of a whole number of different influences. It's not gonna come out of the stratosphere. And so basically when you think about it, all the famous painters, including Picasso, learned how to paint like five or six or seven or eight other people before they develop their own style. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that I lecture on is this aspect of influences, as I mentioned, and this is an example I just sent through to you. I don't know whether you've got that open. Yet. I got it. Okay. So where did the influence that come from? It came from the born to run album cover of Bruce Springsteen shot by Eric Miola. Oh, okay. And, that's what I realized song. was that, yes, you can put somebody right over to one edge of the frame. And that's one of the beauties about shooting square is that you have a whole different series of compos- of uh, compositional things that you can do, which are quite different to working with a horizontal rectangle. And um, so that crop is almost exactly similar to Eric Miola's crop. And so that's a direct application of working with that technique of looking at somebody else's photograph, thinking, let me make an image where I'm using that same process. Yeah. And the reason I mention this is that um, we often tend to only look to our industry for influences. So wedding photographers study wedding photographers. And one of the things that I find interesting about that is that um, what has happened universally is that a lot of wedding photography around the world looks the same. And it's very, very good quality work. There is no two ways about that. However, you look at some of the pictures and you think the only reason I know that that's shot in a different country is because of the landscape. Yep. And or what's happening the reason, in the photo. Sorry?
0: Or, or like like different locations. You, you, yeah,
1: yeah. So, and the reason I mentioned that is that I, th- I think one of the, the most wonderful pictures I saw in a long time was a photograph where I looked at it and I said immediately that's photographed in Ireland and it was because it was photographed outside a pub (laughs) and it was something that naturally happened on this particular wedding day and I thought that's terrific you know that 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 was so good because I remember seeing a lot of work from that part of the world from great photographers where I thought that could have been shot in America or it could have been shot in Australia or it could have been shot in New Zealand you know it, it had a similar kind of look to it yeah and so I think that one of the things that's great to channel in on, and we have such an enormous resource with photography these days is to study things that make your images specific. And by that, I mean, if you're, and I'll use the example again, if you're an Irish photographer, sit down and write out what it means to be Irish because you know, before when I was talking about wedding photography and I say, and I said that we have sort of forgotten the rituals, Familiarity and contempt are the two biggest enemies in photography.
0: Couldn't agree more.
1: We think I won't photograph that because I'm used to it. Yep. Well, photograph as though you were photographing for that lady in the remote hill tribe in Vietnam or in China. Right on. In other words, you're out there to tell a story so tell the story as though somebody had no concept about what the tradition was.
0: Yes. And treat it as though it's the first time.
1: Yeah. yeah. Feels like the first time.
0: <laughs> Great song too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that all photographers do is they, is that we put an enormous amount of energy into working and we forget about how to play. And so that's why I often will say to photographers, every single wedding, you know, when you're working in a particular sequence, let's say it's photographing the groom, do exactly what's expected of you, but for the last five minutes, photograph for you. Yep. Because that, ultimately, that's what they're paying you for.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's basically take your vision and make my day in that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Too true. And um, I was trying to think whether I had any other Fuji things to to speak to you about. I mean, I love the gear. I love the lenses. And, um, you know, again, uh, I, I really wish it's a bit like Photoshop. I wish there was like a little system where you could actually turn stuff off, you know, because there's a whole lot of little buttons I've got to go through sometimes to find what I want. And I get so annoyed when I look at people making comments about the cameras and saying, oh, the menu is just so difficult. It's perfectly sensible and easy to get through. It's just that sometimes there's a lot of stuff that they put in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, we can we could do another show uh, another time about the different gear. The the important thing I I love to hear is what people are doing with the gear rather than the gear itself. I mean, yeah, we touched on, you know, what we did with the Fuji and
1: I, I'll I'll say the same thing that I've always said before is, you know, 79 cameras. Not one's made me a better photographer. It's all about what feels good in your hand, and I just, you know, I I loved, and I couldn't afford at the time, but I loved the Contax cameras, and I mean by that the sort of the rangefinder yes uh, camera, and so um, so for me the Fuji X Pro 2 is that camera, and it's just you know I just love the way that it works, and and um, I very rarely use the film simulations. I'm basically using it on sort of pretty much standard for everything. And I know people like to tweak things. and so I think that's fantastic. You know, you've got that capability, go for it, you know, um, but you know, I'm still getting enormously good quality out of the files. And the other thing is that I don't really have issues with focusing mm-hmm. um, because most of the time I'm not working in situations that seriously challenge it. And I guess that's why I mentioned before, yes, I really want to get uh, uh, Fuji, um, xt4 because i understand that that's extremely good in low light and that will effectively enable me to to be completely fuji
0: yeah i hear you there
1: and and i welcome that because these old shoulders are getting a little bit too too broken down to be holding great big heavy cameras up in the air
0: it's you know that that was that was for me too um I, i had a lot of carpal tunnel coming in from uh canon and you know no fault to canon it's just the way that i was using it
1: lovely cameras you know icons are lovely cameras they're they're all fantastic in their own way and you can't you know i I just get annoyed sometimes when i see articles about people saying things like oh this camera brand is shit or sh1t sorry that's all good this camera brand is sh1t it's nonsense i mean look please don't say stuff like that it just makes you look stupid
0: That's all clickbait. Everybody wants to have another fight because fighting sells. And uh...
1: Yeah, the funny thing about it is that, and I just, sorry to interject there, but have you noticed how the people that get into those fights are exclusively men? And the big difference I think is this, is that women get a camera and they go out and make beautiful pictures. Men talk about the technology of it and the complexity of it before they start taking pictures.
0: I've seen some women in the fight, too, though.
1: Yeah, that's because they're absor- absorbing bad habits from guys.
0: <laughs> true. Very true. I That, that I agree with. So
1: <laughs>
0: with that, Dave, man, it's been a pleasure. We got to have you back on. I definitely want to just shoot the breeze and talk war stories, especially in the early days, because I think that's something it, it, worth talking about. Uh, the, the early digital days, because I mean, I have so many great stories with uh, my, S, uh, my S7000, which is mm. right there behind me uh, on next to the TV, uh, oh, collecting yeah, a serious amount of dust. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, let, let, let's definitely talk again uh, sometime in the future. But uh, tell the world where they can find you on the web one more time.
1: Yeah, it's uh, DavidAnthonyWilliams.com. And I'm also on Facebook, and I will be putting some of my little three-minute dim sum up on the uh, on my art site. And so basically, there's one, there's two sites. There's one of me holding a Richard Abaddon book and holding my number one finger up in the air. That's my rat bag site. That's where <laughs> you're going all political and stupid. And then there's my other site, which is me looking very studious uh, in black and white with my hand up to my chin, like a, a nice photographer pose. And that's the, the one where I pose interesting things about art and design and so forth. And I will be putting up some of my, as I say, my dim sum. What they are is little tasty morsels of information on art and photography. And they're usually no more than three minutes. And uh, I'll put some of those up for you to have a look at.
0: Excellent. Man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, mate. Thank you once again to David for an amazing interview. I had an awesome time talking to him, and I recommend everybody go check out his work. And of course, this show is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X series and GFX, head on over to Fujilove.com. I'm Mark Sadowski, and we'll see you next time.